Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We're going to continue in our study of 2 Samuel in chapter 14 this morning as we continue to walk through 2 Samuel and to see what God has for us in 2 Samuel. Just want to review briefly where we've been so far, where we've gone, where we've been so far. We see in 1 Samuel kind of very briefly, we see this idea of the nation of Israel coming to God and saying, God, you're not enough for us. We would rather have an earthly king that can help for us. We see the, the rise of Saul stepping into that based kind of solely on his outward appearance, on the kind of man that he looked like and the kind of strength that he um, exuded, that God placed him um, on the throne of Israel for a time. And, and in 1 Samuel, we see this rise of Saul and this very quick decline of Saul. And as Saul is declining, we see David, uh, the next king of Israel, coming in. And we see this rise of David towards the end of 1 Samuel. As we open up the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel in many ways mirrors 1 Samuel. And instead of Saul's rise and fall, in 2 Samuel we are seeing David's rise and fall. And over the last several chapters, we're starting to see David kind of going downhill. And the decisions that he's making and the responses that he's having and the non-responses that he's having, we're seeing the, the fall in many ways of David's kingdom, of him stepping away from some obedience and stepping away some, from his role as king of ruler and protector and not being who God has called him to be. And so in many ways, we're seeing this thing mirror um, in, from first to second Samuel. And we're seeing in the purpose of second Samuel, kind of the, the purpose of this book in many ways is to see that, that man is trying desperately to do its own thing to go his own way, to, to be obedient in its own way, to, to come up with its own ideas and to scheme and to do all kinds of different things. And we see throughout the book of 2 Samuel that although those things are happening, God's purposes continue. His purposes for his kingdom, his purposes for his people, his purposes for the nations continue to go forward over and over again. And we're also seeing in this, as we're seeing Saul, one of the themes was in the book of 1 Samuel was, we need someone better than Saul. Saul's not cutting it. Saul's not who we need. We are desperately falling short of what we actually need. Saul's not going to make it. And in 2 Samuel, we're seeing David, the same theme again. We need someone better than David. We need someone more lasting than David, someone who can continue in obedience, someone better than that. We need a better king. And the part of 2 Samuel, I think, in many ways is to continue to drive these things home in its readers again and again and again, that God is sufficient for everything we need. He is our great king. He is our great ruler. He is our great protector. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who will never disappoint us. And so as we read through 2 Samuel in each chapter, there should be a longing that grows in our heart. There should be kind of a pit in our gut of there's got to be something better than this. There should be the sense in us that we were hopeful of turning the page and saying something better has to happen in the next page. David has to get his act together. Absalom has to get his act together. Joab has to get his act together. It has to be better than this. And page after page after page, we say there's nothing better. Nothing changes. It all seems to cycle again and again and again. And we need something bigger and better. And we're seeing in 2 Samuel what I think in this particular chapter in 14 is another warning for us. Another way of looking in chapter 14 and saying to ourselves and, our, and ourselves, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to respond that way. There has 
to be a better way to respond to sin and hurt and disobedience than what I'm seeing unfolding in 2 Samuel chapter 14. One of the things I love, I think it's hilarious, is when I see medication commercials come on TV. Because the promotion of the medication is about 4% of the commercial, and the other 96% of the commercial are all of the reasons this is probably a bad idea for you to take this medication, including death. And I always love the warning, if you're allergic to this medication, don't take this medication. I I love that because it's so ridiculous that they have to say those kinds of things. And so as we see this, something's going on. Something's happening. Mike's cutting in and out. Thanks, Alex. My roadie. Appreciate that. Alex will be selling t-shirts at the end, too, if you want to see for that, too. That's what he does. What I love about those kind of commercials is we just see these, these long warnings. Like one of the commercials that keeps popping up on my Spotify over and over again, at least in the month of December, was the fact that online sports betting was coming to Ohio on January the 1st. And it was this very elaborate, exciting thing for about five seconds. And the last, like, at least 30 seconds is a guy mumbling very quickly things that you can't understand. Right? You know those commercials, right? They're just kind of flying through all those things, warning you about betting and what you can and can't do and all of those kind of rules and going over and over and over again. And 2 Samuel 14 feels a little bit like that. 2 Samuel 14 kind of has one bright spot in it, and I'm not even convinced it's an intentional bright spot, but it is a bright spot in it, and most of the chapter is this long warning of whatever you do, don't respond in this way. I think it's important for us, please bear with me, I think it's important for us in this chapter to read the whole chapter for us. It's 33 verses, um, bear with me, but I think it's important for us to see the whole picture, the whole story that's happening here before I kind of dive in and kind of piecemeal it a little bit. So if you would, follow along with me in 2 Samuel chapter 14 as I read this entire chapter, verses 1 through 33. Just to kind of set up what happened last week, awful, awful chapter. David's son— rapes David's daughter, his sister, brother and sister. Awful things. A plan is set up to murder, to go against this brother by another brother. The brother that murders Absalom is now fled, and he is gone and gone for three years, fled away after this horrific scene in 2 Samuel 13. And it picks up here in 2 Samuel 14. Now Joab, the son of Zerai, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth." 
Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. And this is the key verse, I think, in 2 Samuel 14 is verse 14. She says this, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of a servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me, and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For the Lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my Lord, the king, speak. The king said, Is this the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king, has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Job fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my Lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. For the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to do it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. They were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, see Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I might send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, for, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and there is guilt in me. Let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray real quick. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fullness of it. We thank you for the Spirit who has inspired it and given it to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the wondrous truths that you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of things I want to quickly draw our attention to that sound eerily familiar. 
right? Joab concocting this idea with the wise woman of Tekoa to go and tell a story similar to David's story, but not exactly David's story, to get a response from David so David would be found guilty and recognize his mistake. Sound very familiar? Sounds like exactly what Nathan did to David just a few chapters earlier, right? This guy, this young man had some sheep and had some goats and they did all this kinds of stuff. And David responded and Nathan said, aha, I got you. You got to respond in this way. And now Joab going to this woman and putting words in her ear to say, go to David and say, I have some friends. I have some family members. This thing happened to me. So that David would have to respond. So you can say, aha, now that you responded in this way, you must also respond in this way. Eerily familiar. And we also see in this chapter this, this explanation, for some reason, of how handsome Absalom is. And it sounds strange in the middle of this chapter, and it's eerily familiar to how Saul was described in 1 Samuel, is it not? And to see again the people's hearts shifting away from God, away from a man after God's own heart, to a strong, handsome leader and falling back into worldliness. What I want us to see this morning, kind of two different things. I want to look at this. I want to look at um, how man is responding to hurt and to pain and to sin. We're look at man's, how man's homecoming falls short. And then secondly, I want to compare that to how God's homecoming overwhelms. Just how radically different man deals with sin and disobedience and hurt and pain and how God deals with that. Two very different things. So I only have two points, but my first point has 10 points. So I hope you don't have supper plans because we're going to be here a little while. No, I'm going to fly through those 10 points, but I think it's important for us to see all that. First, I want to look at man's, how man's homecoming falls short. That in the hurt and the shame and the guilt of our sin, that oftentimes we create distance between us and God. We create a distance between God um, and, and others, and we see in ourselves that God does something very differently. God draws us closer. God makes a way to bring us home. He provides a way for us to, to come back home again, to be out, no longer outcast, to give us genuine forgiveness. But man messes that up in a lot of different ways. I want to walk through 1 Samuel 14 and give us kind of 10 responses to sinfulness. This is the fine print. This is the mumbling warning that you hear at the end of the medication. This is all of those things to pay attention to that are oftentimes equally as important as the one positive thing that is said. And so I want to look at how people are responding to this. How does David respond? How does Absalom respond? How does Joab respond? How does the wise woman of Tekoa, how do they respond in the midst of hurt and pain? And remember what has happened. Something traumatic and, 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 and tragic and awful and evil has just happened. And David does nothing. For two years after this traumatic things happen, Absalom is stewing over this and David does nothing. Absalom feels finally has to respond to this and sets up this plan in order to kill Abnon, to, to take out on him the justice that Absalom feels he deserves in this. And after doing this, Absalom's response, I think, is similar to our response to hurt and to pain and to sin, and that is to run. If we look back in chapter 13, the last few verses of chapter 13, verse 34, 37, and 38, three times at the end of chapter 13, it says, Absalom fled. 
Absalom fled. Absalom fled. Three times, it makes us very clear that Absalom's response to his evil, to that murder, was to run away. And for many of us, our first response to hurt and to pain, whether we're the ones doing the hurt or we're the ones being hurt, is to run as far away from possible as possible, to isolate ourselves, to get away from the problem, to get away from the circumstances, to get away from the pain. We run from this. I think it's a natural response for us at times. We don't want to face what has happened there. We want to face those that we've disappointed, and we run from that. Not only do we run from that, our second response to that is we scheme, is we try to figure out a way to get out of the problem. We try to figure out a way to get out from underneath the consequences of our problem. We see in verses 2 and 3, Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. We try to find ways to make it better. We try to fix things. We try to change things. We try to scheme. We try to speak into others' ears. We try to say, this is the real thing that happened. This is what really responded to. This is the real thing going on here. We try to convince people of what's really happening here, and we scheme in this. And Joab was trying to fix the situation. He was trying to get Absalom back. He was recognizing Absalom's absence was causing strife in the nation of Israel. And politically, it would be better if they were together instead of another civil war starting among the people of Israel. And so Joab schemes in response to this. One of the things you will not see as we go through these 10, you will not see repentance. You will not see confession. You will see running. You will see scheming. You will see people trying to figure out things on their own, but what you will not see in anyone's response here is a confession and a repentance. It's all trying to work the system. Not only do we run or do we scheme, sometimes we just out, outright deceive. We just lie about what happened. We just say, this is not really what happened. This is what happened. We, we lie about it because we don't want our reputation hindered. We don't want people to find out about it. We don't want the hurt that comes about it. And it's easier for us to deceive and to lie. We see in verse 4, the woman of Tekoa comes to the king and lies about who she is. This was a town maybe 12 miles or so, just far enough away from Jerusalem where this woman would not have been known, but she would have known about what was going on in Jerusalem. She knew just enough information from herself and from what Joab said to be able to step in and to lie about this. She lurked the part just enough for David to, to buy what she was selling in that moment, that she was mourning all of, the, all of this, that she deceived the king. She brought this story about her life and about what was going on to to bring out in him some kind of response. And don't we do the same thing? When we've hurt others, when we've been hurt by others, it's easier for us at times to have a response of, I didn't do that thing. Or here's what I actually did. Or I'm not really hurting. Or we try to deceive ourselves into believing that the situation is different than what it actually is. Response number four, as we see you in sin and all those things come into us, is we manipulate. 
We use people for our own advantage. We say or do the right thing to get people to do what's right for us. We kind of try to pull the puppet strings on people to to get out of our situation and to manipulate them into forgiving us or manipulate them into forgetting what actually happened or whatever it happens to be. We see in verse 11 that this wise woman of Tekoa said, then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God. That the avenger of blood kill no more and my son may not be destroyed. She looks at David and says, you need to invoke God. Remember, you're a godly guy. You believe in God. You do what God tells you to do. That she's manipulating him into saying, oh, I'm supposed to be obedient to God. I must do what he, what he says for me to do. And she's manipulating him into doing what she wants him to do. To doing what Joab is asking him to do. Not only do we manipulate and try to change the situation, but we also lay on guilt really thickly. Guilt on ourselves for what we've done. Guilt on others for what they've done to us, and we hold it over their heads. We see in verse 13, the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convinced himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. She's laying it on very thick at this point. She's saying, listen, in this hypothetical situation of these two men out in the field, one who kills another and their family rising up to kill the heir, you stood strongly on this issue. You responded strongly and said, this is the way it should be happening. And now you're doing this evil thing against the nation of Israel if you don't also follow through with the nation of Israel. She's laying on guilt and we lay it on thick. We want people to feel bad for us. We want people to feel bad for the things that they did. We want people to respond. We want to lay it onto them to say, how could you have done such an awful, evil thing to me? How could you have hurt me in this way? We love to lay on guilt, and we love to feel guilty. We wrestle with all of these things. How else do we respond when hurt and pain come our way, when disobedience and sin rises to the top? Response number six is we try to control the situation. We try to control it. In verse 20, it says, Joab did these things in order to change the course of things. Your your servant Joab did this. Joab is trying to control the narrative. He's trying to control King David. He's trying to control Absalom. He's trying to control the nation of Israel. And when we are hurt, when we hurt others, when we sin, when we disobey, when we have been harmed in some way, we try to control what others believe what they think about us, what the consequences are. We, in our own eyes, are like Joab who tried to change the course of things. And again, as I said before, what have we not seen at all? We've not seen any confession. We've not seen any repentance. There's been zero humility listed for us in 2 Samuel 14. It's all scheming and manipulation and lying and controlling. Not only do we see this happening, but number seven— What do we do when we forgive others or when we've been hurt by others? We keep others at arm's length. David, quote-unquote, forgives Absalom. After all of this, Job says, listen, let's go back, go get Absalom, bring him home. David says, fine, bring him home, but I don't want to see him. Bring him home to Jerusalem, but keep him at a distance from me. I don't want to see him. That's not really forgiveness, is it? That's not really reconciliation, is it? To say, bring him home, but don't let him see me at all. And I think for some of us, we struggle with this as well, that we struggle with this in a level of forgiveness to others as well. 
We say we forgive them, but we hold them at an arm's length. We say everything's fine, but we keep them at a distance. We say let bygones be bygones, but we say I don't want to really see you anymore. I want to be really careful in all of this because there is some hurt that requires distance. Let's be honest. There's some of us that have been hurt in such a way that, that there might be forgiveness that are there, but bringing those two parties together is not wise or safe to do so. Where distance is the better thing to do. But that's the exception, not the rule, I think. And I think for many of us, we struggle with this idea. We struggle with bringing people close again because we've been hurt by them, or we struggle with stepping back into people's lives fully because we know how much that we've hurt them. Not only do we see distance, but response number eight to sin and to, and to frustration and to hurt is just outright anger. Sometimes it's unchecked anger. Absalom's response, he's back in Jerusalem, been there for two years, has not seen his dad yet. And he goes to Joab to call to Joab to say, I want to see my dad. He calls for Joab once. He doesn't come. He calls for Joab twice. And his response is a very rational one, right? Burn down his fields. He's not coming to me. Burn him to the ground. That's how I'll get his attention. Well, it worked. Joab responded to that and said, hey, dude, what's up, man? Why'd you burn all my fields? Well, I called you twice. I left a voicemail and nobody responded. So my only response is to burn it all to the ground. But some of us, and we laugh and we giggle about that, but when we're hurt, do we not also respond in similar ways? That if you were to look back on that, you're basically burning down a field and you're saying, why in the world did I respond so big to this? Did I respond so harshly to this? Was my hurt so big that I, my anger was just unchecked in this moment? And I'll be honest, every single one of us has had a burning down the field moment. Every single one of us has either thought it or we've done it, where we've done a thing that's so irrational in the moment that makes no sense whatsoever because we're hurt, because we don't know how else to respond, because we want to grab someone's attention. This is how we respond in anger, unchecked anger. How else do we respond in the middle of hurt and pain? We respond with pride. Absalom says something that is just absurd for him to say. And coming back to his dad and returning to his dad, he's coming back and saying, may I drop dead if there's anything wrong in me? That is a dangerous <laughs> statement to say especially knowing he had contrived and conceived of this plan to murder his own brother. And we see in this, this kind of sense in us as well, when we've been hurt or when we've hurt others, this pride raises in us that the thing I did really wasn't that bad. Or the thing you did was far worse than the thing that I did. Or how dare you point this out in my life? How dare you bring this to my attention? I have never done this before. I've never responded in this. I've never done. We respond in the same kind of way of pride. This arrogance like Absalom coming before the king and saying, may I drop dead if there's anything wrong in me. Again, it seems absurd to say that, but we've all said it. Or we've all thought it. I have no wrong in me. I have no blame in me. It is all over there. Everything that is happening in this relationship or this hurt or this pain is all over there. None of it is on me. Absalom is responding in the same way. Finally, response number 10 is no response at all. This chapter ends in a very odd way. 
And it feels like chapter 14 ends in a good way, that everything seems to be okay. Absalom comes back. He bows before the king. The king kisses him. It feels like the end of a nice fairy tale. But we'll see in chapter 15 and 16 and 17, nothing was really done. There's no response here whatsoever. There's no response at all. We've seen it consistently throughout the story, have we not? Abnon does this awful, awful, evil thing to his sister, and David does nothing. And for two years, Absalom does nothing. For three years, Absalom has gone away. David does nothing. Absalom does nothing. Joab has to manipulate the situation to make this right. They come back to each other. There is no mention, zero mention of what would have gone on between the two of them. Neither one of them says, I'm sorry. Neither one of them recognizes the hurt and the pain and the guilt that comes with it. They just say, high five, we're good, let's move on. And that is not a good, godly, honoring, healthy response to the level of pain that we see happening in 2 Samuel. To the tragedy, to the evil that is happening is just to say, bow, kiss you on the forehead, let's go back to life and act like nothing ever happened. But I think for many of us, in our hurt and in our pain, we would much rather act like nothing ever happened. We would much rather just move on. Just let it wash over us and move on and not deal with it at all. And how do I know this is dangerous to not deal with it? Because we read the rest of 2 Samuel. And we see that Absalom now goes off and we'll see goes and conspires to say, how can I steal the throne from my dad? There's not forgiveness. There's not reconciliation. None of that is happening here. And the danger in this is all of this is that nothing is really done. Absalom hasn't repented. David hasn't repented. Joab hasn't. The wise woman, justice has not been served. True mercy has not been given in this. And the danger when we read through 1st, 2nd Samuel 14 is that we begin to look at our own lives and we think, this isn't that far off to my responses to hurt and pain. This isn't that much different to the way that I have responded. I think many of us have grown accustomed to the deceiving and the manipulation and the pain and the distance and the running and the no response and all of those things. We've grown accustomed to that. And the danger in all of that is that we begin to then look at God through the lens of our own pain and our own hurt. Through the lens of the way that others have treated us. How they have extended forgiveness to us, how we have extended forgiveness to others, how we have walked through pain and hurt, how we have welcomed people back. And then we put that onto God. And we think to ourselves, well, God treats me in the same way. God, when I do something wrong, God will run away from me as far away from me as he can possibly get. When I do something wrong, when I do something hurtful, God is going to lay guilt on me and crush me under that guilt. That God is going to manipulate me and control me under the sense of that. That God is not going to do anything about it. There'll be zero response from God. That God doesn't even act or care about what's going on with me. And we get stuck in our hurt and our pain. And the cycle continues. What's happening with David is happening because it wasn't talked about. Repentance was not brought to the table. Forgiveness was not offered. Justice was not really served. Mercy was not really extended. And so the problem continues. And so 2 Samuel 15 happens, and the rest of the Old Testament happens, and the cycle continues again and again and again. 
And I think we desperately need to see God radically different than what we see us. We've grown accustomed to the dysfunction. My question for you before moving on to the second point is, where are you in this list of 10? Do you even see yourself in this list of 10? Maybe you're even blinded by your own dysfunction and blinded by your own pain and hurt and and don't even see yourself at all in this list, but you're in there somewhere. You're struggling with it in some capacity. I'm in there in some capacity. Sometimes all 10 of them in one day. I move through every single one of them in one day. And so we have to see, where am I in this? Where am I responding to this? Where am I falling short? Where am I not giving God the credit that is due to him? Because God's homecoming overwhelms us. It is radically different than what man extends and offers. It is one dysfunction after another in 2 Samuel 14. But there is this bright spot in verse 14. That this woman says, and again, I don't know if she was intentional in this. I don't know if this was wisdom from God in this. I don't know if this was part of her manipulation in this. I don't really care because she said something profound in verse 14. She says, we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. If that is not a clearer presentation of the gospel, I don't know what is. That God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. You know how each and every one of us sitting here this morning has come into a relationship with the creator of the universe? Because God has devised a mean to bring the banished one home. It is not you It is not your efforts. It is not your struggle. It is not you trying to get things together. We are point one. We are the 10 things that we fall short over and over again. It is God who steps in and creates means by which we can come home. God knows our limitations. He knows we have just a short time on this earth. He knows we all die. He knows those things. He knows our limitations. He patiently waits for us. He makes a way back home for us in a way that isn't partial or manipulative or empty or incomplete, a way that satisfies justice, extends mercy, a way back that actually restores and gives us genuine peace with him and with others. Not a short-term bow, kiss on the head, move on with life, but nothing's really fixed. A forever welcoming home. A forever restoration. And God is patient with us. God is kind towards us. He does not long to destroy us. We do not serve a God who is anxiously waiting for us to mess up, that he can crush us under his boot. And he could crush us under his boot. But he chooses to wait and to be patient and to show us kindness 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the God that we serve, radically different from us. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, as God is kind of setting his people into the promised land and giving them these warnings and letting them know, hey, here's what's going to happen to you, and here's how you're going to respond to this. And God, even then, in Deuteronomy 30, knows there's going to be a time where you're going to run away from me. There's going to be a time where you're going to be disobedient. But I want you to know, before you take that first step away from me, I will be waiting here for you when you come back. Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 5. 
It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice, and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes, have mercy on you, will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 4 says this, it's beautiful. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. This is the God that we serve. As far away as you feel right now, as distant as you've made yourself from God, as distant as you feel from God, if your disobedience, if your hurt and your pain has driven you away from God, he will find you in the uttermost and he will bring you home. This is the God that we serve. He will not leave you waiting, wallowing in your sin for year after year after year. When you want to come home, you will find him running towards you. This is the God that we serve. Jeremiah 3, verses 31 and 33 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the God that we serve. And radical difference to David and to Joab and to Absalom and the dysfunction of their family. And radical difference of how we treat one another of how we believe God is treating us. God loves to welcome sinners home. He loves to bring you back home. He loves to bring outcasts back home in a way that is meaningful and true and lasting forever and ever. In a way where our sin is not winked at and overlooked, but is dealt with in a real way. In a way that mercy changes us. That doesn't keep us living our own way. The mercy extended to Absalom in that moment didn't change him at all. You turn the page to chapter 15 and Absalom immediately starts scheming. That mercy extended to him, whatever it was, does not change him. The mercy extended to us by God radically changes us. If we understand the depths of what he has done to save us and to rescue us, the mercy and the grace that he gives to us changes us for all time. God devises means for us. He welcomes us home. He doesn't wink at our sin. He doesn't act like it doesn't happen. He takes care of that sin so that we can be welcomed home. And how does he do it? How does God take care of it? How does God, what means has God devised to bring us home again? He crushes his own son. He takes your sin and your pain and your everything that you have ever done to be disobedient against God and he places it on his own son, Jesus. And he crushes his son under the wrath and the weight of your sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't act like it doesn't happen. He takes it out on his son. But his son is strong enough to bear the weight. The son is not ultimately crushed by it. He is raised from the dead. He is brought back to new life so that we also might be brought back to new, new life. That all of our sin goes on to Jesus. All of his righteousness comes on to us so that we might be able to walk home boldly, freely, and to say, I'm home where I belong. The question is, in all of these things, what do I do with this? What, what do I do with this amazing news that, that we see in 2 Samuel 14, this dysfunction, but God offering us something infinitely better than that? What do I do with this? Well, the first thing for some of you is, come home. Come home. 
you've stayed away far too long. You've distanced yourself for far too long. You've contrived, you've manipulated, you've controlled, you've hurt, you've been angry, you've done all of those things for far too long. You've made excuses for far too long. God will not welcome me home. I've done it far too many times. I've heard far too many people. They are all excuses. Because God does not say, earn it and then come back. Make it right and then come back. Fix it and then come back. Heal and then come back. God says, come home. Broken and busted and hurt, and I will help you get fixed. I will help you to heal. So some of us need to come home. Some of us, I don't raise Joab as an example very often, but some of us need to be like Joab and go grab our long-distance friends and say, come home. Some of us, all of us, need to leave this place and find a world full of people who are hurting and lost and broken and say, there's a way home. It has been made right for you. This, this is free for you now. A means have been made for you to come home. That's us proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. Come home. It has been made right for you. You've been made whole again. Some of us need to come home. Some of us need to go and to grab others. This morning, as we look through this passage in 2 Samuel 14, it's important for us to think about in our own lives, where are we here? Where is the dysfunction in me? Where is the shortfall in me? What do I need to confess this morning? What do I need to have repentance of this morning? And where do I see God in all of this? How can I shake off the scales? How can I shake off the hurt and the pain and all of the things that have come upon me to see God clearly for who he is? In the midst of 2 Samuel 14 and all of the warnings and all of the don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, go to 2 Samuel 14 and meditate on 2 Samuel 14, 14. That says to you, God has devised means to bring the outcast home. We see that clearly in the life of Jesus. One of the ways that we celebrate that and remember that is we take the Lord's Supper once a month. Our music team would come and get ready for this, and those who are taking up the Lord's Supper can get ready for this. This is why we do the Lord's Supper once a month. Not because it's on the schedule, not because it's the thing that we're supposed to do, somebody's telling us to to do this, because we need to be reminded that Jesus has made a way home for us. We need to be reminded that God has devised means to bring us home. And we eat the bread and we drink the juice to remind ourselves that it was not my blood that was spilt. It was not my body that was broken. Every means that I tried to devise in my own self to fix this problem falls miserably short. I just find myself digging deeper and deeper holes. But when I trust in the means that the creator of the universe has made for me in his son, Jesus, I can be made whole. I can come home. I can break the cycle. What we see in 2 Samuel and throughout the Old Testament is this downward cycle again and again and again. And Jesus breaks us out of that and puts us into something new and better and greater. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we just want to encourage you again. This is for those who are trusting in Jesus as the means of their way home. If you are trusting in anything other than Jesus this morning, this is not for you. If you're still trying to figure it out, 
If you're still questioning, if you're still trying to understand this whole Christianity thing, this, this, this communion is not for you this morning. It is for those who are trusting in Jesus. It is for those who are trusting in Jesus with the power that he gives to them. Not perfectly. We all stumble. We all fall. We all mess up. And we, we remember the Lord's Supper not because we are perfect, but we are being perfected. This is what God is calling us to. There will be a day we will look like Jesus. Not yet. When he comes home, we will look like him. And this reminds us that we are changing from the inside out. So if you're a follower of Jesus, please take. If you're a parent with a little one this morning, again, we want to just a word of warning. warning um, encourage them to take the Lord's Supper if they are also followers of Jesus. I say this before kind of jokingly, but this is not a snack to get you to lunch. This is not a, hey, take this, nobody's going to worry. This is a big deal that we're taking the Lord's Supper, that we drink this juice and we eat this bread to remind us of what Christ has done for us. If you're a believer this morning, but you know in your heart that there's something that you're struggling with, there is a sin, there is a disobedience, there is a pain that you know is there that God is convicting you of, and you're not doing anything about it, but you're letting it sit and simmer, we again ask that you let the Lord's Supper pass. This is for those who want to enjoy and to worship all that God is doing for them. So as we take the Lord's Supper, as we sing this song, um, remember all that God has done to bring us home. We will pass the elements out, and I'll come back just in just a little bit, and we will take it together.